I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, once again, I thank you so much for the scriptures and all that they teach us. I ask for your grace and help now as I preach and for each one of us to be resolute in our decision to follow you. Lord, for any this morning who are doubting or skeptical, I pray that you would reveal your goodness. I ask this in your holy name. Amen. Binary choices in life have the ability to both frighten us and sometimes be incredibly refreshing. Take, for instance, the wedding menu. If you're invited to a wedding reception, do you want chicken or beef? That's sometimes really refreshing. Unlike going, say, to IHOP or Cracker Barrel, where you look at the menu and there are multiple pages of items, and then you find out they offer breakfast anytime too. So it's overwhelming to have a menu that's that large. Or consider the new express lane over on the Mandarin side of the bridge. You know, you're driving along and you're going with all three or four lanes and there's this express lane. And sometimes it says zero dollars or 50 cents and you're weighing, well, there's nobody in that lane. It's the narrow way, but it's wide open. I could go there. I'd have to pull over. And, and that decision can be sort of, I mean, the binary decision forces you, I'm either going to go in there or not. But what's not good is if I plow right into all of these barriers, right? It forces, it forces you to go right or left. And that can be a little bit daunting. Most of the time, we would like a middle way, a middle option, We really like those surveys that are asking our opinion, and it says, I agree, I strongly agree, I disagree, I strongly disagree, or undecided. Yeah, undecided, 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 right? If we can stay undecided, that that gives us a sense of freedom. And so I asked you this morning a question about a recent decision that you had to make that took some deliberation, whatever it might be. You had to buy a new car or something, something you had to spend some time thinking about, and then you had to make a decision. Did you find that easy or difficult? Are you someone who makes decisions fairly well, or do you have buyer's remorse or regret afterwards, or you struggle with that? What is your temperament like? In the teaching of Jesus, he tends to avoid middle ways. He tends to present binary choices. So far, we've seen a number of these in the Sermon on the Mount. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Decide which one you'll belong to. There are two kinds of righteousnesses, if that's how you say that. There's an inner one that is coming out of a new heart. It's the righteousness of Christ for a Christian. And then there's an external one that's a facade. It's a veneer that you paint onto your life with religion to look like you're a real, honest, good, holy person. But it's just on the outside. And Jesus shows those two kinds of righteousness. There are two masters You can either serve God or money. You can't serve both. You see how Jesus oftentimes forces the binary decision. You're going to go right or you're going to go left. And today, he is starting into the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. And any good sermon or any good paper, for that matter, you've all taken English, I presume, has an introduction, and then it has the body, and then it has a conclusion. And a sermon should call forth some kind of amendment of life, some kind of response or action. And Jesus is doing this now. As I look at this, um, at the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to me that he has bookended the body of his sermon with the law. Back in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And then chapter 7, verse 12, 
which we read last week, comes to this point. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call that the golden rule. It sums up the law and the prophets. So he seems like he bookends the body of his message with a focus on the law. And then he comes to a call to action, very directly. Enter by the narrow gate in verse 13. He's inviting us to make a choice. He wants us to choose the way of life. The narrow gate leads to life. The wide gate leads to destruction. Again, binary option. There is no kind of middle way that gets a little bit of either. It's one or the other. And the Bible has lots of places where choices like this are presented. I think about um, the great leader Joshua who succeeded Moses and took the Israelites into the land. He watched them struggle with idolatry. They kept going after foreign gods and idols and all this sort of stuff. And on his deathbed, he gives this, this both pronouncement of where he stands and an invitation for them to choose. This is Joshua 24. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've seen that in some of your houses, that last bit. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Declared where we stand, you put it on the wall, and it's a reminder of the decision you've made. Or think even about the Psalms. They begin in Psalm chapter 1 with a description of the wicked person and the righteous. In fact, it uses a beatitude. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And it describes what that blessed person is like. He's like a tree planted by a stream and he flourishes, but not like the wicked. They're like the chaff that eventually will be blown away. There's judgment coming. And he lays out the righteous path and the wicked path. This is all through Scripture. And it is a tenet of evangelical theology to call for conversion. No one is a Christian by association. You are not saved. You are not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family. What makes a person a Christian is the decision to trust in Christ. And it is personal. I wouldn't say it's private. It's personal, though. It's personal to you. And this Sunday is actually a baptism Sunday. I've got the baptismal font up here, kind of a new place to put it so that the cameras can see over people's heads. And we're going to baptize two children at the 11 o'clock service. And yes, their parents and their family will make a promise. But if you look closely at the liturgy, they actually use the first person pronoun. I renounce the world. I renounce sinful desires. I renounce Satan and the powers of darkness. I trust Jesus. I put my you know, hope in him. It's in the first person, even though the family will be saying it, because they are speaking for that child chronologically out of order and looking forward to the day, having raised them in a Christian family, looking forward to the day when that child will say, I now believe this. These are my promises. And then the church will say, mom and dad, you step over here. Person, do you believe this? I believe this, we confirm it in you and pray for an increase of the Holy Spirit. And the bishop will ask the Holy Spirit to help that person in their life of faith. Because the conversion is important. You have to make the decision to renounce the world and come to Christ, which is what he's presenting to us here at the end of his sermon. 
So Jesus, mind you, Jesus is addressing disciples. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and then his disciples came to him, and he taught them. So he was then describing the, the blessings, the blessedness of being his disciple. And he's giving a caution here about how hard it is to be a disciple. And what will happen oftentimes is people will cheapen the message of grace. They will steal away the cost of discipleship. And I want to quote to you something I've quoted before, and you're probably very familiar with it, but I have in front of me the cost of discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's the Lutheran pastor and martyr uh, who died for his faith, and he made a distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. And he says this about the cost of discipleship. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, continuing to choose the narrow gate, choose the path of discipleship, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, the Bible says. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So Jesus pulls no punches here at the end. The cost of discipleship is real, and he's inviting all to come into it. To believe in Jesus is to enroll as a student of his. We use the term discipleship, but it's so used, sometimes we, we miss what it's really talking about. It's apprenticeship. I'm coming under the apprenticeship of Jesus, and he is going to teach me how to live along the narrow path. What does it look like to die daily to myself? What does it look like to take up my cross and follow him? How do I do this, Lord? In our church, we have a discipleship pathway. We talk about discipleship a lot. We recognize it is a pathway, and it involves worship, and it involves membership in the body and belonging. It involves service. It involves helping others along that pathway as well. Now, the text today starts out by contrasting a narrow gate and a wide gate. So think for a minute about a narrow gate. You can't fit much through it. It's the difference between going on a trip and flying versus driving. You have a carry-on, maybe you check a bag and pay 30 bucks to put it on the airplane. When you're driving, you can throw anything in the trunk that you might need. You can fill your car with way more than you need. You can bring all this extra baggage and it really doesn't matter. But if you're going on a plane, you've gotta be intentional. You have gotta leave some things behind. You need to bring only what you need. A narrow gate, the spiritual narrow gate, requires us to put to death the old way, to leave the old mic behind and step into the new one that God has presented for me. It requires me to, to crucify, to use that term, my sinful desires, to put them to death. I need to give up old habits. I need to give all of my habits to the Lord and let him, my, my mentor, as I'm being apprenticed, tell me about my habits all of my life. Remember, the invitation to the kingdom is this, repent, Change your mind about things. So a narrow gate can't fit much. Just you go through it, and you have to leave a lot behind. The wide gate means that it's popular. You know, back to the highway, 
four lanes are going straight on 295, and then one pulls over, or maybe it's two, to become that express lane. It's popular. Most people are going over here. I used to think that, you know, engineer, forgive me, I used to think in terms of numbers. Well, if there's a wide and a narrow, that must mean 51% of humanity is doomed to destruction, and 49% at best will be saved. But that's not fair, and that, I think that's a, not a good interpretation of this. And it doesn't reconcile with other parts of Scripture, which, by the way, you have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's just good biblical thinking. So there are parts of Scripture that suggest that it's far more than just a small minority. Even though the wide path is very popular, and maybe groups are able to enter into it, whereas the narrow gate one at a time goes through, the scriptures, for instance, in Revelation 7 suggest it is many people who end up actually taking the narrow way. Listen to this. This is John in Revelation describing a vision of the future and a vision of the heavenly throne. After this I looked, he says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That sounds like a lot of people. No one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, I'd point out too that a narrow gate does not mean one type of person. In light of the recent racial unrest, I've been doing a lot of studying, reading up, trying to understand the plight of people of color in our country. And I have even used the term in the past, being colorblind, meaning not judging someone based on their color. But I've come to the conclusion that that's not good. I want to see color because heaven is colorful. The narrow gate does not mean a homogenous entrance of one type of person, all peoples, all nations, all tribes. And it recognizes the beauty and the diversity of God's creation. This narrow gate has a lot of people coming into it. So it's not just a small select few that are going to be saved. And then Jesus goes on a little further and he cautions us about the teachings of false prophets. He says, beware, in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the church, I mean, immediately saw those kind of teachers coming into it. And we need to be careful because they don't readily identify themselves. Hey, everyone, I'm a false prophet. I'm going to try and deceive you. I'm going to try and, you know, malign God's word and lead you down the wrong path. Nobody comes in that way. Oftentimes, false teachers are very decorated. They know how to say churchy things but mean a slightly different thing. Many times they come with great advanced degrees and the right clothing and they have titles and all this sort of stuff. And Jesus is saying, be careful because they're going to distort the word of God. They're going to try and lead you astray. Let me go back to Bonhoeffer for a second here. Before he described costly grace, he talked about cheap grace. And this is what a false teacher will teach you. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism, but without church discipline. It's communion without having a confession first. It's absolution without personal confession Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. I want to encourage you to evaluate every teaching you should hear and ask, is the cross central to it? 
because there is a false teaching that wants to jump right from the incarnation to the ascension and not have that awful cross in the middle and glorious cross in the middle because it requires us to deal with the fact that our sin caused that and we want to not have a cross and that kind of teaching is all over the church and it's false and Jesus is saying be careful of those who would tell you to take the middle way keep you know dabble in some religion over here but keep a foot in the world and you can do that it's fine everyone's going to be forgiven we all end up in the same place there are teachings like that that are out there and Jesus is saying watch out and you know how you can tell it's not to evaluate just their doctrine by their fruits you will recognize them <clears throat> twice he says in verse 16 and in verse 20 you will recognize them by their fruits and then he says are grapes gathered from thorn bushes you know, a thorn bush might be growing for a while and you're not sure what kind of bush it is, but eventually it brings forth either grapes or thorns or whatever variety it is. It is the outworking of the life. So their fruits can be character as well as doctrine. You look at a teacher and you say, does that person seem more and more like Christ? Do I find that they are reflecting what Jesus is teaching? It's not just the words that matter, it's the deeds. You know, preacher, practice what you preach. And I think we need to be careful and we need to evaluate everything that we hear because there are false prophets out there. And then these false prophets will trade on Jesus' name. And he says something here that's so stark. On that day, meaning the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. So they're trading on Jesus' name. But what he's saying is the way through the narrow gate, the, the path that leads to life, the one that few choose, the one that's hard, not easy, is actually about a relationship. It's about coming along with Christ. It's about letting him shape you and walk with you and know you and be known by you. That passage shouldn't be scary to you if you're walking on the path. You know Jesus. You know that you know him. And so you're not worried that he's going to say, you know, Mike, you did all that church work and preached all those messages. You were just coasting on my name. You never talked to me in private. You didn't have a relationship with me. You were just acting. I have no worry about that because I know that I know Christ because of the goodness of his kingdom that has come into my life. Remember, this sermon started with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth. It's a blessed and an inner joyful state to know Christ. If you don't know that blessedness, well, the Lord's telling you what to do about it. A narrow gate has to be sought. It's not obvious. A big wide door is, you know, there, but there's a little door over there. You know, you've got to look for the other exit or the other entry, as it were, onto that path. It's a choice. He's giving us a choice. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. It's unpopular. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy. So which is it, easy or hard? Well, it's kind of both. I mean, it's hard to die to self, but when Jesus is carrying you along doing it, it's easy. It's his yoke. He's helping you. The Father loves you and is good. If you jump back just one paragraph before this, you hear things like this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Over and over and over again, Jesus has presented the stark reality of judgment, but right against the goodness of God, the love of a heavenly Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit. He will send his spirit to be with you, to be in you, to dwell in your life and carry you along. And so, yes, it's a yoke, but it's an easy yoke because the Lord is helping you the whole way. I want to conclude by just sharing something from, I can't even call it a book. I mean, what I'm holding here is literally two inches by three inches. It's more like a track. Although it's kind of funny because in the corner it says, new expanded edition. (laughs) It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. And he's using an analogy, or actually really it's an allegory of a home for his life. He says, I will never forget the evening I invited Jesus into my heart. What an entrance it made. It was not a spectacular emotional thing, but very real, occurring at the very center of my soul. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness and harmony where there had been discord. He filled the emptiness with his own loving fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door of Christ, and I never will. After Christ entered my heart in the joy of that newfound relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want you to settle down here, to be fully at home. I want you to use it as your own. And what the little track does is it goes on through the different rooms of the house and, and talks about the struggle of handing over lordship of each part of his life. It's, it's about breaking down compartmentalization. You're not just a Christian on Sunday morning. You're a Christian because you have a relationship with God. You've invited him into your heart. You've said, come and be my Lord as well as my Savior. And he actually takes you at your word. He thinks he's the Lord of your life. And so the, the narrow path is the path of discipleship, which means all aspects of your life are going to be worked on with the Lord. And he's going to keep working until he's completed the good work he's begun, until you are perfect in him. That's what discipleship is about. That's the invitation today. And I want to encourage you to choose that narrow path because it is so infinitely better. It's incredible. You know, today is, uh, Heather and I are celebrating our 23rd anniversary, and I, 23rd on the 23rd, and I tell her, marrying you was the second best decision I ever made. I think you can figure out what the first one was, and I hope that you'll make that same first decision, that you'll decide now to walk with Jesus on his path, the path of discipleship. Make him your Lord. And I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up, and we're going to sing a song that's offering our surrender to his lordship. But I want to pray as they come up. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the clarity of your words. I thank you for the call to action, the invitation to a choice. Lord, I pray for your grace to help us make that choice over and over and over again. Lord, help us to give you our hearts. Again, I pray for anyone who has not trusted in you, that he or she would see the goodness that you are and what you offer. Help us, Lord, to choose life and know the blessedness of your kingdom. I ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.